Welcome to another exciting episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail. This is episode 10. I hope everyone's excited. Are you excited, Tim? I am so excited. I mean, this is this is epic breaking news. It's I mean, it's just big news. Yeah, we've made it 10 episodes. I can't believe it. This certainly is a train wreck of a show sometimes. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, but we're back for another exciting episode, and we have lots of things to talk about. Some stuff is a little bit heavy, uh, so we're just going to get right into it. Afghanistan is still in the news. I'm going to sort of throw it to you right here, Tim. Afghanistan is in crisis. Yes, yeah. It, it feels sort of weird to be celebrating the 10th episode of our podcast and then jump right into something that's just so horrifying. But it's hard to go anywhere other than this to start our podcast because it, it's so massive and it, it's, I think, looming large in everyone's minds these days. Just what horrible news it's been to watch this unfold. And, and it started, of course, you know, before Kabul fell, and you could look at it and think, you know, maybe somehow, some way this is going to work out okay. Uh, maybe it's not really as bad as it looks, but it, it just keeps getting worse. And, and so we watched the Capitol fall, then uh, we've watched the Taliban try to assert itself as a legitimate governing authority with uh, all the trappings still of its terrorist past. And then just to watch the, the crisis, the, the people uh, lining up at the airport trying to get out of Kabul. The, there's that one picture. I, I, did you see that picture, Jason, of some parents handing their, their infant over the, the barbed wire? to the soldiers so that they could at least get the baby out of Afghanistan. I I did see that one picture. Yes, indeed. I think about pictures like that and it's just so horrible. Um, And we wanted to cover a few different things I know on the crisis, but I, I think part of it that probably all of us keep coming back to, to some extent is how poor our planning was walking into this process. I don't point fingers at a particular administration on this. I, I think both of our two most recent administrations share a lot of guilt in this. Negotiating with Taliban, uh, a group that persecutes anyone that disagrees with them, kills people they disagree with uh, without any hesitation at all, that sponsored terrorism. Um, you, you know, there was lots of debates on whether we should have been in Iraq or not. And there's plenty of debates, too, on whether we should have been in Afghanistan in the way we were. But I think everyone has agreed that certainly al-Qaeda had links there. So negotiating with them uh, under the Trump administration, the Biden administration continuing to hold the agreement the Trump administration had made with the Taliban. And, and then just the way that we did this, where you could watch the country collapsing as we were pulling out and allowing it to get to the point where we're now asking the people that want to kill us to let our allies through, um, handing over lists of some of those allies to them in hopes that they'll actually act in good faith about them, and then just watching them actually kill people. I mean, it's just been a horrifying few weeks, and uh, I'm still trying to get my head fully around what's happened. You just have to wonder, how did we get to the point where we are right now? Well, and the thing is, even if you had the idea that you're going to trust the Taliban, as foolish as that is, you have to recognize that other extremist elements like ISIS are going to take Take advantage of that. They did the same thing in 2011 on the anniversary of 9/11, and and the Obama administration uh, wasn't 
wasn't ready for that. Um, and and so they, they were not prepared in so many ways. They were not prepared to get the civilians out. They were not prepared to have enough security to get the civilians out. One of my friends told me that he's been following the, the news from the European countries. And there's, there's European citizens trapped in Afghanistan who were captured and tortured and murdered by the Taliban because we didn't consult with our coalition partners at all. So there's going to be a lot of blame to go around. Who it falls on, who knows, but this is uh, this is a farce, and the very bad people are taking advantage of it. Um, and it's a great tragedy, like you said. I, I think for years to come, there's going to be ramifications from this, and you bring up a good one, which I, I think Many of our allies are going to have to contemplate how deeply they want to get involved with the things that we do um, when the end game can end up like this, uh, where we don't seem to be putting a lot of consideration into helping them get their people out safely to the extent that that one would hope. And I think it's a big question uh, with our Afghan friends as well. There were a lot of people that put hope in us that we would, would help them into some place that was better than what the Taliban had put them under. And and you can see then how that spreads. For example, I heard last week that the one paper that's state-sponsored in China uh, put out a warning shot to Hong Kong uh, freedom fighters that they should remember how the Americans had treated the Afghans if they consider that maybe the Americans are going to come to their rescue in fighting against mainland China. And so this has ramifications far larger than Afghanistan itself. And sadly, many of these ramifications play into not just the desire for, for liberty and freedom and, and uh, democracy, those sorts of things, but also the ability to safely uh, spread the gospel. Because certainly, one thing we can say very clearly about the Taliban is they're not really too fond of Christian evangelists coming around. Uh, neither are the communist Chinese. So as we see totalitarian regimes take control, especially in ways where you hope that maybe there could have been a plan that would have prevented it, it, it not only has ra- the ramifications from a political standpoint, but it has real ramifications on the church. And, and God can overcome that. He can work through that. I believe that with all my heart. But nonetheless, there are consequences, and they're horrifying consequences. Uh, for example, I just heard this morning that one of the church partners of Faith Tree had a missionary in Afghanistan. That missionary had had 30 men recently, just in the last few weeks, be baptized and become believers in Jesus. Nine of them have been arrested by the Taliban in just the last two weeks. Two of them have been executed by the Taliban in the last two weeks. And, and this is just the beginning. This is while we still have forces on the ground. And, and so we need to be praying, and I think we should be watching this very closely. And I hope unlike our normal short attention span that we in the Western world and the United States in particular, don't just forget about what's going on here, but we, we keep praying and, and seeking whatever way we can to try to offer aid to these people. Yeah, I'm right with you there. And, and we're going to see, think we're going to see a lot more martyrdom, which in, in a way is a blessing. But as you live through it, it's, it's not. And if you're the loved ones of those people, then uh, it's it's not what you want. So let's keep praying and hoping. And as we can offer aid, like we said last time, let's find a way to do that and go from there. Absolutely. 
I put in the show notes last time, and I'll do it again, some links if people do want to try to provide aid. Um, certainly, we should continue praying. And I, I think here is something that's been striking me thinking about the future. Both political parties in the United States were involved in this for a good reason. We were tired of being there. The American public didn't want to be there. Not getting getting into whether we should have been there forever or anything like that. I think one thing that we need to do is express to our leaders um, that we as citizens can have patience with things. And oftentimes we don't show that. And, and that's something where we share some of the blame in all this, that, that the politicians assume that the way that they get reelected is they move hastily. But I think that's a, a opportunity for us to show something different, to quit buying into the social media mob that demands immediate results so that maybe our politicians would be encouraged and reward politicians who go down this line that even if, for example, the right decision was to leave, that they understand that we have enough patience and self-control as, as their uh, their base to take the time to do it in a way that minimizes human suffering, that we that we care more about not hurting other people, then we care about getting what we want as fast as possible. And if we can express that to our politicians as a society, we can change things from where they are right now. As we talked off the air, uh, the the horrifying things that the Taliban is doing have nothing to do with a debate about intervention or non-intervention. Some of these horrors could have been prevented with better planning, as we've said. Right. And I think uh, that's the tragedy of it. And it's what the next group of leaders is going to have to to clean up. So, again, a tragedy and but opportunities. Uh, you have another part about this, about Christian converts. Yeah, yeah. One thing, yeah, one thing just before we close that so we don't leave on a completely hopeless note. Um, I, I haven't been able to dig deeply into this yet, but an organization called Catalytic Ministries has this as a tweet from just a couple days ago, they said, we just confirmed a report from Christian leaders in Afghanistan. One underground church network that was roughly 320 people has ballooned to approximately 2,500 in just the past two weeks. The gates of hell will not prevail. This is so encouraging, and it's something that has happened time and again through history. You and I were talking about Tertullian saying so many centuries ago, early church father, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And indeed, so often when persecution happens, the opposite of what we might think happens. God uses that to call more people to faithfulness. And so that's one of my prayers is that I don't want these people to suffer, but um, I sure hope in their suffering they turn to the only one who can offer them true peace. And I hope the same for us. And and again, what's what's ever encouraging um, about these persecutions and about the heroism in spite of persecution is that it's not just long ago. You know, the the Mexican government in the twenties after their Marxist revolution was very very um, anti-Christian, anti-Catholic, and so there were several martyrs of the Cristero War, which was memorialized in uh, For Greater Glory, which was a movie that came out several years ago. Uh, Blessed Miguel Pro, among others, died uh, fighting fighting the Marxist Mexican government, and they they gave their lives just just to be able to practice their faith, just to be able to pray and worship publicly, uh, which was banned by that government at the time. So it's these these tyrannical governments they don't quit, uh, but neither does God, and I think that's our that's our hope going forward is that God is never asleep, even if these tyrants uh, are never asleep also. Amen. May we always remember that. 
we've been talking about breaking news, and one of the things I think all of us want to do is stay up to date on what's going on in the world. We have news sources that are increasingly polarized like our society, and so you go to one place and, and you read the news, and it feels like you're getting one picture described, and you go to another news site, and it feels like the world might as well be a completely different place. It's, it's in the Marvel multiverse. It's someplace different. <laughs> and that's where I think faithtree.com news is a really useful tool for Christians and anyone that simply wants to know what's going on, because it allows you to grab news from a bunch of different sources. And so, for example, what I do, I have news sources that are on the left and on the right and in the middle. I have Christian news sources and secular news sources, and I have them feed all into there, and I can scroll through and get a sense of what's going on in the world. And it's not just the picture of one news source that wants to cast everything to fit their own political worldview. It's so helpful, especially in a time of crisis. I'd encourage you to check out faithtree.com. It's a service that Faithtree provides to help anyone that simply wants a a place that, that can help them interact with what's going on in the world, free of advertising. It's, it's simply a, a gift from the ministry. You can put in your favorite sources and check them out every day. And hopefully, as you do, you'll think to spend some time praying for Faith Tree and its ministry as well. You can sign up for free. It's been online for over 20 years now. We're in the 20th anniversary year. You can sign up at faithtree.com today. And there's a bunch of other features. You hear me talk about those. But Faith Tree's news sites are so helpful. You can pull them all in. Check it out today. Yeah, any tools for discernment are worth celebrating, Tim. So thank you for that. It's my blessing to get to do it. Well, to, to change topics, this is a bit of a jump in a way, but not really. Uh, we've been in a, a mini-series summer over the last few months. Uh, Jason was going through WandaVision, and I was going through Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and we've both reached the end. We talked about most of the WandaVision wrap-up last week, but we are going to return to Tinker Tailor, which is so fitting because we're talking about political intrigue and global politics and and how nations affect each other. And of course, that's right in the heart of that mini-series. So we're going to talk about that and then WandaVision. There are going to be two separate chapter markers in your podcasting app. And so if you've seen one but not the other, you may want to skip the section on whichever one you haven't yet seen. This is a spoiler alert for you. But we're going to jump into Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy first. I have made it through to the end. I know who Gerald is. Congratulations, Tim. You made it to the end. Oh, thank you. And, and we can all rest a little more um, peacefully at night because we know that George Smiley's on the case, right? Yeah, George George is on the case. Uh, Sir Alec Guinness plays George Smiley, and he, he wraps it up. And what did you think about that ending, Tim? Uh, the, the ending was really... Um, it felt a bit like a, a a cliffhanger or something. I was expecting a bit more closure, and it felt like that last scene with Anne. It kind of uh, was was just leaving me uh, to wonder what was going to happen next. Which which may fit since you warned me that there there's more to come. Yeah, there's more to come. Yeah, because you got to go to the next miniseries, Smiley's People. So I, I felt I felt really sorry for George at the end. I have to say, it, it just felt kind of I felt bad for him. Yeah. And I think I think that's one aspect of what Lacare wanted to do is that it this this intelligence business is not glamorous uh, like James Bond like Ian Fleming's James Bond wanted to make it out to be so and one of the things that happens uh, in the real intelligence business according to Lacare is broken marriages broken families that sort of thing so that's that's part of what you're witnessing with Anne and George 
because um, they were never on the same page there, and she she doesn't honor her vows, and George just has to kind of deal with that. Um, so that's one aspect there. Yeah, it, it's interesting, uh, and you alluded to this when I wasn't as far along, but it, it, you could tell there was going to be some kind of connection between his marriage to Anne and how this all unfolded, but it wasn't clear until I believe I, I believe it was episode six that. It was an actual intentional exploit by Carla to to use his broken marriage as a way to help cover up the mole. Yeah, do you remember back in part four when they met in Delhi um, and Carla said, do you know where your wife is? And he looked right at the lighter that was on the table and Carla saw him do it. And so Carla instantly knew, oh, he's worried about Anne. Mm-hmm. So I can use Anne against him. That's his weak point. And so that's what he did. So Carla, this is a definite spoiler alert. Carla um, organizes things with Bill Hayden, the mole. Sorry, just ruined it. To to have Bill Hayden have an affair with Anne to throw George off the scent. Um, and so that's what they do. Because like Bill says, um, it's bound to look like personal vengeance if you ever did suggest that I might be the mole. So here's a uh, a question. One thing that left me a little puzzled. I have my suspicions, but uh, Toby, uh, who, of course, is the first of the the inner circle of the circus that that George confronts after he's put together the pieces, seems to sort of melt. Um, He seems to understand that he could get in a lot of trouble, and yet it seems like, on the surface, he was just doing what he was supposed to be doing. Do you have a sense of what's going on in that part? I thought that was um, something I wanted to dig into more. Now, what you'll what you'll get if you read the book is that Hayden was the ringleader of this little group of guys, and Toby was never as smart or as self possessed as he thought himself to be, and neither was Roy, and uh, neither was Percy. So it was all Bill, and so I think the reason the reason that Toby melted was because Toby doesn't know what to do if he doesn't have Merlin. Mm-hmm. Um, so if Merlin goes away, and he doesn't know that it's Bill. He doesn't know that he's he's working for a mole. But if Merlin goes away, then what am I for? Toby is thinking, you know, when that melted away from him and it was clear that George was getting closer, he ran to George and Peter for help because he didn't he didn't have any other options. Yeah, that, that's kind of a theme throughout it. There are a lot of people sort of contemplating big existential questions about what their lives are for, isn't there? Almost all the major characters at some point. Uh, they have to ask, what's their life for? George certainly has to ask that question, I, I think. Um, you, you see that with um, uh, Jim, uh, Jim Ellis. Uh, that's his code name. What's his real name? Jim Prito. Jim Prito. He seems to be deeply uh, wound into that question of what, what what's really the purpose of everything he's been through. It's a question they keep returning to. Yeah, Jim has it rough, doesn't he? He... You know, he resents being drafted into the circus so long ago when he was so young. And yet you see him there. Remember Jim passing on his talents to the young boys at school and and so doing the very same thing that they did to him. It's really interesting in that way. But it's really easy to have sympathy for Jim because he he tried to do his best. You know, he tried to do what was expected of him and he he lost everything there. Including... I thought it was really telling when um, he confronts Hayden and the thing that has scarred him the most are, aren't the gunshot wounds. It's what he did when he was put under interrogation that is something maybe all of us wrestle with if we really think about it. You know, that question, What I, I like to think that I'm strong. I'd like to think that I'll stand up for principle. 
But what happens when it really is confronting me? What happens when my principles put me at risk? Am I going to be able to stand firm ultimately even to death? Uh, we've been talking about persecution earlier. Or or am I going to crack? And he has to live with the fact that he knows they cracked. Yeah, and... And he wants to blame himself at first, but George won't let him. You see, it's like, you, you did your best, Jim. You couldn't You couldn't do anything else. There was a mole. They knew it. They knew everything that, that you tried to hide. And it was because of Bill. And, and here's another spoiler alert. Bill and Jim were lovers, you see. So that, that adds another layer of betrayal there. Uh, they sort of underplay it in the BBC miniseries, but it's there. Yeah, it, it's very, very subtle. The... Whole plot is, in general is, is very subtle in it, isn't it? Um, so the sort of thing is it, it, not, and it ties into what you were saying. It's not flashy, like like a Bond movie, for example. What did you think of Carla? Carla was fascinating. I, I I was hoping to get to see more of him. I was kind of disappointed. I only saw him in the one episode, if only because I just love uh, Patrick Stewart so much. But but he's a fascinating character. Um, probably one of the the most intriguing parts, I'd say, of the whole the whole plot is just trying to figure out who Carla is and what his motives are. Right. Well, you will get to see him just a little bit in the next miniseries, so be excited for that. And then again, the end of Smiley's People will wrap up the Carla story. So I think it wraps up so well, and I think you're going to love it, Tim. Well, I will boldly go into that, I suppose. Maybe with some. T. Earl Grey hot. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will have to definitely check back on Carla in the future. And this concludes the first part of our miniseries wrap-up. So now it's time for the second spoiler alert. If you have not finished WandaVision, this may be the section that you want to skip over because we're going to return to one last little bit of that. We we pretty much wrapped it up last time, but there's one fascinating scene in the last episode that I wanted us to talk about. And and that's the scene where you have two visions, um, not double vision, or maybe it is, but you have White Vision, who is the original body of the character Vision uh, that had been killed in a, a previous Marvel movie and reconstructed. And then you have the vision that Wanda has reconstructed using her magical powers. Unlike everything else in, in WandaVision, we learn at the very end that vision isn't, in, in this case, Wanda controlling the body of her husband. This is vision who has been created out of the Mind Stone coming out of the part of the Mind Stone infused in Wanda. So, so in some sense, part of vision's original essence or, or soul, even maybe, is being pulled back in to create the vision that we know for most of the series. And you have this fascinating moment where you have the two of them confronting each other because White Vision, who has been reprogrammed by the the antagonists of the story, uh, particularly in, in the agency of, of S.W.O.R.D., to go after Wanda, is on that, that mission that's so contrary to the original Vision, even though he's in the body of Vision, in part because he lacks the knowledge and the understanding of Vision. And then you have the Vision who has no, in some sense, original material existence, but has what you might say is the heart or the soul of Vision. And they they talk to each other. And it's fascinating, this this conversation, because they go into this ancient Greek discussion of the ship of Theseus. And uh, I, I think it's a really interesting discussion. What did you think of that scene, Jason? Uh, well, at first, I needed to consult you for information on the ship of Theseus. But now, 
that we've talked about it. Uh, the discussion centers around because they had replaced the boards on the ship of Theseus as time went on with new boards. You know, some rotted away and so they replaced them. And so at some point, there was nothing left of the original ship of Theseus in the thing that was sh- was serving as the ship of Theseus. But again, uh, and it brings us back to the story, which one of these is actually vision? And what is the essence of vision? Is it his body or is it his soul? And I would say, uh, like I would say for the ship of Theseus, the essence of vision is his soul. So the one that knows he's vision and knows who he is, is vision. And the one who had the original body of vision, but that is programmed to destroy the other vision is not vision. He's just, he's just a shell. Um, because the soul is the form of the body. I'd have to agree with you as far as which one is the the real vision. The one that I'm rooting for to continue in the story is the one that ultimately, uh, towards the very end of the plot, has to be dematerialized as Wanda gives up her, her alternate reality that she's created. But there is an interesting point there in that exchange, because towards the very end, as as vision, as Wanda's vision is confronting white vision he gets permission from white vision to remove the memory block that has been imposed by sword so that he can so that white vision can start to remember who he really is and and it doesn't really go into great detail on how much is transferred does he does he get a full picture of everything that that um that this vision that we've gotten to know over the previous episodes has experienced or is it purely the things before vision's death we do get a sense because it rushes through a bunch of scenes that he is at least remembering who Vision was prior to his death. And so it leaves very much open the question, and I'm sure Marvel will be glad to avail us of the answer in a future movie or, or miniseries, but it leaves open the question, does White Vision then get fully restored and he, his soul and his body are reunited and, and you basically have a resurrected vision that's the same vision that Wanda fell in love with and married? Right. Or is he a, a third thing? We we don't really know. But what I, I think is interesting about that, we don't know that in that case, but in that it really struck me it's a wonderful picture of the hope of the resurrection. And unlike one vision trying to restore another vision, we have someone who can actually genuinely restore us that we hope in in, in the Bible. And so to me this spoke to what I've heard so many times from people coming to me as a pastor where they'll say, for example, a loved one is in a, a house fire and the their their remains aren't really even all that identifiable. Is there any hope of a res- resurrection? You, you know, what what where does the hope of the resurrection lie? And I felt like this actually, if you really think about it, it I mean it's a, a superhero movie, but it's contemplating a question that I think we can say, wait a second, this this reminds us of where where we're ultimately situated as well, because just as where, like you said, the form of the body is the soul. And and I think if you're watching WandaVision, you're rooting for the vision who's ultimately not the original body. Um, we can look at it and say, like we were talking before the show, however Jesus wants to do it, if he wants to pull the original atoms from around the, the earth, if our bodies were scattered all over the place, if he wants to pull it all back together exactly how we were when we died, he can do that. But the the bigger point is, we're told that he's going to take our souls who are in the presence of God as we await the resurrection, and he's going to give us a physical body again. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15, he's the first fruits of that, and we see that in him. And so how the mechanics of it work may be as murky in some ways as what we see in WandaVision, 
but there is a genuine hope of a, a genuine restoration, uh, just as the ship of Theseus is patched up. Yeah, I mean, the the primacy of the soul uh, does not negate the body, um, because the Christian hope is the unity of body and soul, eventually, in the presence of God in heaven. So that's a wonderful thing, is just because, just because you emphasize one over the other doesn't mean that you repudiate the other. Right. That's why we bury our bodies. That's why we, we honor the dead when they die because of the resurrection hope. Um, rest in peace is part of a prayer that is shot through with resurrection hope. So uh, we just need to keep that in mind and, and realize that God is God. So no matter what horrific thing happened to separate a soul from a body, um, God can get that back. Absolutely. And, and that's what I loved. I, I ended WandaVision feeling sad because Wanda is once again apart from Vision and, and there's a lot of murkiness there. And yet it felt like it looked forward in some sense with hope. And how much more so should we look forward with a sense of hope as we grieve loved ones we've lost, as we think about our own finite time on earth, that we know that Jesus has been resurrected and he's going to do the same for us. And that's where our hope is situated. And that's one of the things I love so much about this miniseries and how it reminds us in a very secular way, but nonetheless that yearning for something more and something that then the Bible answers very concretely and in a very real sense is something more than just a, a wistful hope it's a real hope yeah amen this is going to just be a quick uh, topic but we're going to turn for a moment to a headline from this week a, a disturbing bit of news from the National Association of Religious Broadcasters. Daniel uh, Darling, who had previously worked at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, had recently been hired there as a spokesperson and was fired after he wrote a pro-vaccine op-ed in USA Today. Just, just really kind of a shocking story. What do you make of it, Jason? I think it's foolishness. I, I think... We need to be pro-vaccine without forcing anyone to do anything or anything like that. But we need to be pro-vaccine and encourage people to get the vaccine. And anybody that says, oh, being pro-vaccine is pro, pro-liberal or pro-secular or whatever you want to say, it's just nonsense because... I think the vaccine is our best protection against this thing. Yes, social distancing is fine. Masking is fine in certain scenarios. And, you know, you and I aren't going to encourage mandates or anything like that. But, you know, if someone hasn't been vaccinated, talk to your doctor. If there's hesitation, um, talk to your doctor, talk to the experts, find somebody you trust and then get the vaccine. And this guy was just talking about that um, and how that gets him fired. I don't know, um, because it's a great way to love your neighbor. You know, even if you were sitting there saying, oh, I'm going to take my chances because I'm young and healthy. Um, I think that's dumb. But think of other people as well. When you get the vaccine, you become less able to be a carrier for the virus. So uh, that's the aspect of, of charity and, and Christian friendship that comes in into getting the vaccine and and anybody that's against that well i i just don't know what they're thinking and i and i don't agree with that at all and i have to oppose that as firmly as i can poor dan darling i have friends that that know him um and and they're mad and they're sad and they should be because it it's an outrage it really is and it's so disturbing that this organization that's intended to 
advocate for free speech for those of faith is actually turning its guns on its own and saying this this man who is simply doing exactly what you just advocated for, Jason, you know, uh, that we should love our neighbors, so we should get a vaccine because it seems like the most helpful way to do that at this present time, turned it into something where they, they wanted him to confess insubordination for having written this. And it's sort of hard for me to get my mind around how a lot of Christians are almost treating a pro-vaccine mindset as equivalent to heresy. And I don't know where that came from. I wrote a piece last week on Open for Business urging pastors not to write letters uh, excusing people from employer mandates uh, under a religious understanding of it, unless they could really point to some scripture that that they felt was being violated, because I'm a little concerned we're, we're turning our shared faith that we confess into a mockery where we're saying, we, we, we stand firm, we're firm on these vaccines or being against them, but we... We wouldn't do the same if the person were spouting actual genuine heresy. And it's so weird to me that we've turned it into like a tenant of the faith. What, what a, what a troubling thing. And you see what happens when you do that. Then suddenly a, a man who everything I've heard about him is positive, who is probably doing a really good job, as far as I know, uh, of advocating for religious liberty in, in areas of speech is being turned away for expressing free speech in something that has no contradiction to what we confess as Christians. Um, I mean, the only Christians that can really, I believe, say that, that being pro-vaccine is somehow anti-Christian are Christians that are somehow convinced that the Bible forbids medical care, full stop. Because the idea that somehow it's embracing fear over faith to, to get a vaccine, when we constantly utilize the, the minds that God has blessed our world with who can look into ways to to deal with ailments, we constantly look to that sort of thing. We take over-the-counter medicine. Probably a lot of the people advocating for this took, uh, you know, some Tylenol this week for something that was ailing them. That sort of thing. How can we do that? And then when we get to something where there's this amazing blessing that God has given us to try to end a plague, we turn it into some kind of religious test. It's a shibboleth that just makes no sense at all. And I, I'm praying for Darling that he's able to find another good position and that there's some we somehow can return to sanity. I know we've talked about this before, but faith and reason, faith and reason. We don't need to juxtapose them like faith is opposed to reason. No, faith builds upon reason. Uh, and it's one of those things where if the scientists are telling us, hey, this will protect you from this virus, well, okay, you know. But it, if, if scientists tried to tell us, oh, well, I've discovered this and this, and that means that there is no God, well, okay, that's a metaphys- metaphysical claim. Now you're into philosophy, and that doesn't make any sense. But let's we use our reason all the time. Why are we abandoning it for politics? You know, absolutely. Or even, you know, cultural war and cultural signaling. That's the part that bothers me. You know, um, even a broken clock is right twice a day. So uh, if Nancy Pelosi, for example, says that everybody should get vaccinated, well, Nancy's right. It doesn't mean she's right about anything else necessarily, but she's right about that. If Bernie Sanders tells me to get a vaccine, I'm like, reach on, Bernie, it's about time. So you said something true. But uh, no, just kidding. Um, faith and reason, it goes together. It's not opposed to each other. Uh, let's be wiser about this. Let's have some more discernment about this. And yeah, I hope Mr. Darling uh, lands softly because that's, that's an injustice right there.
Jason, you know, one of the things we can do that helps us to avoid getting into those sort of partisan traps where our faith is informed more by our politics and our culture than by the Bible is to spend more time in the Bible and to spend more time with those who help us to understand what the Bible is actually saying. And that's something I love about Faith Tree Grow, our second sponsor for tonight, where we have materials, uh, articles, sermons, devotionals, and of course, Zippy the Wonders Snail in there on a single site, grow.faithtree.com. You can go there anytime during the week and find encouragement from God's Word from faithful men and women who are actually reflecting on His Word and seeking to communicate not what our culture, left or right, is pushing us to, but what God's Word says. That's what we need to spend more time doing. If we do that, it will help us amazingly because God's word is applicable in every season. Amen, Pastor Tim. And uh, speaking of which, we always like to close our podcast spending a little time in God's word. And both of us have been finding ourselves in Acts 7 on and off over the last few weeks, including at the Faith Tree Men's Bible Study. And so we thought we'd land there. Jason, what, what, are, you, what are your reflections? That's the, the martyrdom of, of Stephen which seems relevant with where we started today. Uh, what, what stands out to you in Acts 7? Well, what strikes me about Stephen's sermon there is how biblically faithful it is, and he connects the entire Old Testament together, and then he connects it to Christ, and then he issues the challenge there to the leaders and saying, you're not being faithful to this whole revelation that God has given, which now culminates in Christ. And obviously, that makes him a big target. They were not necessarily thrilled. Not the best way to win friends and influence people there, Stephen. Um, But what's striking about what Stephen says there, especially at the end, is he says, forgive them, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And it's very similar to what our Lord says when he's on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And the person who was overseeing the entire thing was Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul. So I think another aspect of this that you're seeing is that Luke is writing a defense of Paul's ministry as he's under arrest and he's on the on the way to Rome to be charged for being a usurper. And what Paul's sort of doing in the book of Acts, or what Luke is doing in the book of Acts, is trying to defend the ministry of Paul from charges that he is disloyal to the empire. So Several times, Paul mentions that he is a Roman citizen, that he's never contradicted the emperor, and so on and so forth. It's a great testimony to the church itself and to the work of God in the world that the biggest persecutor of the Christians would become their biggest advocate, the Apostle Paul. He calls himself one untimely born because he persecuted the church, but he was the apostle to the Gentiles. So here's the man who oversaw the murder of Stephen, and then he is apostle of the apostles. I think he wrote 13 of the books of the New Testament, the 27 books. What an amazing testimony to the work of God in the world to just change this guy from an enemy to a friend. You know, and when he was on his way to Damascus, he was struck with the blindness, remember? And then the Lord spoke to him, and the Lord didn't say, why are you persecuting them? Remember, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus, and this will tie us back to everything we talked about at the beginning with Afghanistan, Jesus identifies himself with everyone who confesses his name and suffers 
and dies for him. What a blessing to know that Jesus identifies with us with us in our suffering and is there with us in our suffering and he'll be there with us in glory. Amen. What a comfort when we do face genuine persecution to, to remember that Jesus is with us in that. I think sometimes we, we almost turn the stoning of Stephen and other incidents in the Bible like that into metaphors, unfortunately, where we think of, well, you know, if someone speaks ill of me, that I'm being persecuted. Or, or we've seen that, for example, where there are probably people that were saying that someone like Daniel Darling was persecuting their religious faith because he was advocating for vaccines. I, I've seen people actually tie pro-vaccine remarks into to religious persecution. But you have a time like we're in now, people throw around terms about persecution very loosely about things that really aren't that big of a deal. Someone speaks ill of us or, or posts a mean meme about us or whatever. But then you see the Afghan crisis, and it, it should remind all of us, when we hear about the stoning of Stephen, it's not just a picture of when you know someone is mean to us. It's when someone is actually actively killing us for our faith. That that Stephen is is doing all this in that context, and he can do, do what he does. He can pray that the Lord would forgive the people killing him because he's operating through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's giving him that ability. Our our natural human ability is to want vengeance and to want to strike back and so on. But Stephen instead is focused on the glory of God. And it strikes me, I, I so hope that if I ever find myself in such a situation where, where to stand up for my faith is to face death, that one, that I would stand faithfully. You know, we talked about cracking earlier in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I hope that when the chips are all down that I stand firm for for my principles, my my belief in, in the Lord. But I hope even in that, that I do it in a way that's glorifying to God like Stephen does, where he's willing to say, Father, forgive them. And may, on both huge things like people trying to kill us, and in those smaller things that that eat at us, may our attitude constantly be likewise. If not only Stephen can do it, but ultimately, as you said, Jesus does it, and Jesus does it completely undeservingly facing death. And people are mocking him, and he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. May we follow his example and follow the example of those who follow his example, and likewise seek to forgive. And through that, God's redemption works. And and I love what you point out, Jason, that one of the people that's the recipient of that prayer is Paul, and God's going to use him. And I just hope that we can be praying and seeing some of the people persecuting the church today turning into the greatest evangelists of the future. One of my prayers the last few weeks is, may God turn the Taliban into an amazing Christian awakening. I, You know, it seems unlikely, but Saul becoming a Christian and then becoming the great evangelist and apostle seemed unlikely too. So we should believe some unlikely things and, and count on God to work in amazing ways. And it, w- and it was him who would later write, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities. So when you do see these tyrannical governments and things persecuting people, uh, there's still people that are involved in that. And so we pray for them. We don't pray for the causes that they support. Right. So the people are not our enemies. It's it's that evil, evil stronghold that upholds the tyranny. And behind that is the evil one, of course. And that's what we pray to st- stay strong against is the the temptation of sin and the temptation to doubt the goodness of God whenever we face anything. So we pray that the martyrs of today um, had that strength, and we pray that everyone who's confessing their faith in a hostile world will, will stand firm, but with love. Yeah, may we do that each and every day. We are out of time. 
So yeah, another Zippy the Wonder Snail, episode 10, in fact, is now complete, but there is much more Zippy to come, and we'll be talking about more of these things that matter to you, news and culture, so much going on, and so much to think about in this world that God has given us. And so I hope that you will subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app, such as Spotify or the Apple Podcast app. You can go on, subscribe, and get every single episode delivered to you as soon as it's available. Of course, you can also check us out at zippythewondersnail.com. Please let your friends know about Zippy. It's a way to help them zip through their week as well. We will look forward to seeing you again. Have a great, great beginning to September and a wonderful holiday in the meantime. <laughs>